This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello and welcome to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Acadia. And today I am joined by a special guest, Christina Krantz-Kissel from Petmate. And Christina's career in e-commerce began 16 years ago when she started with Macy's.com before it was Omnichannel. And she went on to specialize in e-commerce after that point. Her current role is with Petmate, the parent company being Doskasil, as Director of Business Development for e-commerce. Christina sees it as her duty to make an impact and be part of history as e-commerce continues to emerge. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm excited to dig into your perspectives on retail media and how that works in your company and how you see that changing and evolving over time. But before we jump in there, I shared a little bit of your bio, but pretty interesting start to your career at Macy's. How did you sort of parlay into e-commerce after starting out there? Yeah, it's actually a little bit of an interesting story with me. I started very early in my college years looking for, you know, an opportunity that intrigued me, to be quite honest with you. And, you know, I think internships and, you know, even my first full-time job, my second year of college, I quickly started to realize that merchandising and retail was definitely the path I wanted to take. But it wasn't until Macy's.com that I realized I loved the dot-com, the e-commerce part of the business. And I saw tremendous opportunity. I mean, even going back now, you know, the 16 plus years essentially in regards to what e-commerce was eventually going to be. You know, I did dabble. I had a few months in a non-e-commerce role twice throughout, you know, my 16 years. And both times I kind of reverted back and I was like, e-commerce is my passion. I believe in it. And I know it's going to above and beyond exceed expectations, which I think it took until COVID (laughs) for everyone to really, you know, initiate the buzz. But yeah, no, Macy's.com started me off and I continued on to be a 40th employee hired at Guilt Group. I left when there were probably thousands of employees, but I had about four years there. And that startup mentality that really allowed me to learn the business and, you know, continue to kind of take those learnings, lessons learned, et cetera, on with me throughout my entire career. And I see no other path than e-commerce for me. I love it. So explain a little bit about your current role at Doskasil and what your team looks like and what you oversee. So my current role is very different than my role even a few months back. I wear many hats. And so I sit on the e-commerce team and I really analyze sales and then manage operational aspects. You know, anything from ensuring forecasts are accurate, especially knowing what we went through during COVID with out-of-stocks and now what we're going through with over-inventory levels. Forecasting is important, but ensuring we have inventory in the right warehouses, the right inventory in production, 
those are all essential to managing the business. You know, and then also managing, you know, where are we not fully optimized? You know, what else do we need to do to make sure we are optimizing sales, especially where we have actually made tremendous impact in ensuring we have the right inventory available to our customers. And so I work with countless cross-functional teams. You know, I think my goal is just to ensure the optimization of the e-commerce business. Great. And that includes retail media, which we're going to jump into. And I'm curious to hear what you think Petmate does particularly well with retail media right now. Well, right now, I think we test and learn a lot. And I think we've seen great results when we have the ability to test and learn, you know, and really hone into a specific category in some instances, a skew on an e-commerce platform and gain an understanding of what return are we seeing and understanding why is it good? Is it bad? And really dissecting any campaign that we run. I think we do a great job at that. That's how you build. That's how you grow. You know, you could run something and you can take the results and kind of continue doing what you did previously, or you can kind of create a new pathway and take all of those lessons learned from the one or hundred plus campaigns that you are running and utilize, you know, all the information that you received from whether it's a test and learn, or it's just a second run of a campaign. And so I think that's just something that the company does really well because they've acknowledged the opportunity and they're facing it head on. That's great. What's an example of test and learn that you've done recently? Have you tried out Amazon live streaming, for example? We have not. Okay. Uh, yes. That's on our radar. Okay. <laughs> I think we've tried different techniques within Amazon and other omni retailers. We're also testing, you know, other omni retailers like Petco and eventually it will be Target here. Again, we're kind of open to mm -hmm learning more about what each platform could deliver. Can you give me any sense of like some companies have, for example, like a 10% of their BAU budget is allocated to test and learn, or they're going to test X new initiatives per year. How do you kind of ring fence test and learn initiatives so that get out of control from a cost standpoint or an energy and attention standpoint? How do you choose how many or what kind of budget to allocate to those test and learn activities? It's a great question. I think because a lot of the campaigns that we are running, the way we're running them, a lot of what we do is test and learn initially. I'd say, you know, if we even look a few months back, a good portion of our budget, much more than five to 10% of our allocated marketing budget was probably in test and learn. I think a good threshold is probably around that 10% mark, you know, just in case it's not profitable. I'd say our budget is more than 10% right now, but I think it's something that in the future, we would probably target closer to that 10% to primarily be test and learn. And do you have any advice for people listening to this who don't do as much testing and learning as you do about how to shut down a test or say this did not work and sort of own that and move on. Because I think that that is something that in some organizations, it could be a cultural thing or it could be something that you're just not used to, to doing so much is saying that didn't work, but taking something from that and moving forward. So I think 
It's all a matter of timing in some instances. So the first two weeks of any campaign, you really can't expect to see the results that you'd like or expect to see. Yes, 100%. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it takes patience sometimes. If it takes two weeks to see any type of profitable results, from there, you kind of have to monitor. So best practice for me, I would probably say in my experience, I've tried to change or alter campaigns a minimum of three times after the two-week period. If I don't see positive progress after those shifts or changes that have been made, I would have to make the discussion you know, or have the discussion to walk away. Or shift. In many instances, not walking away per se. It is perhaps stopping that campaign and shifting into another. Yeah. We were just talking before the call about the difference between a growth priority and a profitability priority. And this is something, I think I joked about it recently on the podcast. I've managed to bring it up almost every single time because it's pretty foundational, but it's not always understood how that is going to impact your results when you're shifting from one to another. So we have worked with brands who have had a long-standing profitability orientation, really focused on ROAS, for example, and getting a really strong return because that's where the brand is at or the company is at. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But when there is then a a move toward growth, we need to grow. We want to grow 30% this year. We want to launch a new brand, launch a new product, grow category share. When you switch gears like that, even two weeks is not enough. There is definitely some drag associated with switching gears with strategies. And that's a pretty extreme example to go from overall growth to really trying to dominate a category. But I think that your point about giving it enough time and knowing when to tweak versus walk away is really important. And I'll have to admit, much easier said than done when you're used to seeing a certain ROAS and that is kind of tanking. It's hard to watch that happen, but you do need to give it some time to actually see the full result of that effort flow through. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think a really important part of any campaign is also understanding, you know, what are those benchmarks in place? And you may be hitting some more than others. And so what does that mean for your campaign? If you are increasing brand awareness and not necessarily reaching your ROI goal, that is something that you can kind of take back to the drawing table and say, like, listen, we're not hitting our our ROS. However, we're increasing brand awareness and the impressions are skyrocketing. So how else is that impacting our business that maybe we're not seeing in these specific metrics or these specific numbers? And so it is really just taking that into consideration and not just having these five benchmarks and that's all. You could have those benchmarks. It's important to have benchmarks, but it's also important to analyze the campaign and see where you're overperforming in ways that you didn't originally expect. That's a really great point just to underscore that like you might be looking to achieve something specific in a test, but it ends up boosting something else, then it's technically a failure for what you were trying to accomplish, but it is a good lesson to bookmark for later when you're actually trying to grow impressions, for example. That's super helpful. Thank you for sharing that. What's one thing that you believe about retail media that others maybe don't? 
don't know if it's something I believe that others don't, but it's kind of like the saying, you know, dance when no one's watching, like spend when no one's spending. <laughs> so, you I know, love we're, it. we're going into who knows what, to be quite honest with you. Some call it a potential recession. Some say are adamant about that. But I think we just have to keep our eye on the prize and we have to keep brand awareness on the table and make sure we are driving our brands to the best of our ability. And for us to slow down because sales are slowing down because of over inventory levels and retailers are keeping five weeks of supply versus eight to 10 weeks of supply in some instances, we can't slow down. And that's a highly debatable topic, to be quite honest with you, because if you don't see the sales, you can't justify the budget. And so your budget is naturally going to decrease. But to internally build a business case that allows you to continue spending while others are potentially pulling back is a huge opportunity. Yes. Yes. I love it. And do you have any advice? It sounds like you have had some experience in this area. How do you sort of advocate that message to your finance team or to, you know, whoever is holding the purse strings to say, look, if we don't we slow down spending now, it's going to have a repercussion with future revenue or your point about how about if we yeah, spend when no one else is spending, we're going to get some more market share. What have been some effective ways to get that point across internally that you've discovered over the years? I think bringing awareness to that in many instances where we have seen success with return on ad spend. So, you know, if that return on ad spend is contributing, let's say 10 to 20% of current sales, I'm just throwing a number out there. Sure. If we pull back, how is that going to affect our forecast? You know, how's that going to affect our revised sales plan or sales forecast over the next few months? And then forward looking, you know, we take our sales plan down 10%, our budget down 10%. Like, where's that going to leave us? It's not going to leave us in the best spot. And so just communicating what those numbers look like and being incredibly specific about what's at risk to lose by doing that is incredibly important. I love that. And one other point to make there is just to plug some recent research that we did with Analytic Index around the effect of sponsorship or advertising on organic visibility on Amazon in particular, and has been sort of a long hypothesized phenomenon to see that when you advertise on Amazon, your overall sales increases and that there's this sort of Amazon tax, if you will, it's pay to play. So we actually did do some quantitative research on that and found there is a very strong correlation between sponsorship activity and organic visibility. And it does depend on the category. You're in the pet category. I think that that is from memory, reasonably highly correlated, but it's not just about the sales coming directly from advertising because there's this known correlation between ads and organic sales. Your organic sales are going to go down as well if you pull back on ads. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you, among all the companies that you've worked with, you have seen a number of different sort of structures around how different brands sort of resource retail media and also share budgets. What do you think some best practices are there? What have you seen work particularly well? So 
it's a cross-functional effort to say the least. So it's not one team that's making the call. It's multiple teams. You know, you have the team that's most closely correlated with the retailer in many instances. So it's customer facing and is communicating, you know, what our budgets are and what we plan to spend with them. You know, and then it's also the e-commerce team in many instances, regardless if it's an omni-channel retailer or a pure play retailer, because the e-commerce team usually has the best knowledge about what types of campaigns they should be running, you know, and what are those benchmarks? How would a sales forecast shift, you know, when you are executing XX campaign? And so I think cross-functional teamwork and communication is just the most important portion of that structure. You know what I mean? Like you kind of need multiple hands in the pot. There's not just one team that's kind of dictating, okay, this is what we have to spend and this is how we're going to do it. I do think it is a multiple team conversation in many instances, just to kind of fully understand what's going to be most efficient for them. That makes a lot of sense. Some of the challenges that I've seen play out when it's the sales team is setting the budget, for example, is there can be less of a focus on branding and top of funnel and awareness building because that doesn't have an immediate payoff. How do you get around that in that kind of structure? So it goes back to communication. In many instances, everyone, you know, as we've kind of discussed, everyone attributes the success of a campaign to ROI. And what sales benefit are they reaping from participation or execution of any campaign? You know, just communicating what brand awareness and impressions, how they add value, because ultimately, you know, the goal is to raise brand awareness. And the more we raise brand awareness, the more our customers are going to seek our products. They're going to be more familiar, more comfortable to purchase. You know, and even if they're not looking for our products or searching and Googling for them, when they do see those ads eventually pop up, there will be a higher comfort to purchase because it's a relative name. It's a name they've heard. It's a name they've seen. And so I think brand awareness and impressions is almost just as valuable as ROAS in many instances. And that's something that not all teams always see eye to eye on because at the end of day, we need to see sales. And so it's just the communication and how you're monitoring and viewing a campaign. Got it. Is there anything that you've changed your mind about with retail media? So when I first got very heavily involved in retail media campaigns a few years back now, and it was during COVID, um, that was really when I had the most exposure to a campaign. And I think my goal was always to compete. You know, it was always to target another brand. And what I realized is conquesting is not always the best route because a customer that is already familiar and searching for a specific brand, you will see a much lower conversion. You may be able to identify a new customer, a new to brand customer in some instances and steal that customer from another brand. But at the end of the day, a customer is often comfortable with the brand they are searching for directly. And so I wouldn't ever put all eggs in a basket to conquest. And that's something that I learned. That was a lesson learned for me because I think going into my role, my prior role, to be quite honest with you, and understanding what those metrics and benchmarks should be, I always thought conquesting and driving, you know, keywords and conquesting 
specific aspects of a campaign were going to be much more important than I think they are today, personally. Yeah, that's a good takeaway. And do you have any predictions for retail media going forward? No specific or metric-specific predictions. I know retail media will continue to grow. I think that the way we've seen retail media evolve in the last even two years, to be quite honest with you, one thing everyone tends to, not everyone, but a lot of people who are in e-commerce call themselves this e-commerce specialist. And I do it myself sometimes because I've been in e-commerce for so long. But to be quite honest with you, no one is an e-commerce specialist. We are all learning so much now and over the last two years. And there's so much more that we are going to be learning. We're on the breaking tip right now. Like there's still so much that certain platforms are trying to identify and help continue this evolution of Mm -hmm. retail media. And you know, we could think, okay, it is what it is right now. Let's learn what we're doing. And that's, of course, important. We, we need to be experts on what we're executing and what we're doing now, but it's going to change. It's going to evolve. E-commerce is the future. It's always been the future for me. And I think it's even more clear now. And so I think just recognizing the opportunity and the evolution that's kind of where is in progress yeah. is incredibly important. I love that. Yeah, I love what you said. No one is an e-commerce specialist. We all still are learning. Yes. And what's one thing that you're excited about? I'm excited to be a part of it. I chose my passion years ago and I've stuck with it. You know, I've kept my feet in the e-com world and I love it. And so I think just continuing to pursue, you know, e-commerce and driving that e-commerce penetration and percentage making sure that we are capturing those new customers online, you know, and driving the business forward. I love being a part of it. That's great. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining me today and talking a bit of nerdy retail media with us. Thank you so much for having me.